Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, giving us light after rain. We thank you for uh, those who are uh, leading us here. We thank you also for the young adults who are here. Lord, be with us now as we think through again this topic of sin and your law. And we ask that you will guide us to a right understanding of your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As I was thinking about and reflecting on the uh, last several um, talks that we've had, it's interesting that there's kind of a uh, there's a lot of similarities going on. Pastor Neal's and uh, Pastor Sexton's talks, I think, were very similar. And I think also that mine is actually very similar to Pastor Booth's. But with that, it's also kind of amazing that... Uh, they are going to be so different. Uh, we can come at the topic of sin and at the law um, in very, very different ways uh, that help us to see kind of the full picture of what sin is and how we ought to view God's law. So with that, with that opening remark, I want to ask you for some definitions. How would you define sin? This whole conference, this whole retreat is on sin. But give me a good definition of what you think sin is. Yes? What I not ought to do and not doing what I ought to do. Okay. talk to her. She had these amazing, just imaginative titles, but I didn't give him time to send them to him, so you're stuck with my pathetic title. But uh, one of them had to do with missing the mark, actually. So, um, because uh, we're going we're gonna to develop that a little bit more here. Anything else? How else would we define sin? That's pretty good. Self-worship. Self-worship. Okay, good. Um, Sin, in order to talk about sin in a certain way, especially with your remark, which was, how, how did you define it again? Uh, not doing... Not doing what I ought to do, okay. and doing what I not ought to do. And then doing what you not ought to do. Right? <laughs> so that implies that there is an ought, right? That there is some standard of oughtness that we have to, to develop, which we would call God's law, right? Um, so how then would we define, other than the oughtness, how would we define, what are your definitions for God's law? How would you think about that? Start with the Ten Commandments. Okay. Pastor Booth actually gave a pretty good definition. If you guys Anything else? How, how else should we think about God's law? About the Ten Commandments. Go ahead. That which is in conformity to his character. Very good. Okay. <coughs> Anything else? Okay. Good. Well, keep all of those definitions <coughs> in mind. And I hope that uh, we will explore all of those and then uh, come out of this uh, talk with a very good understanding and perhaps 
a different understanding of what God's law is and therefore what sin is. In 1997, Joshua Harris wrote a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Is anybody familiar with that book? Several? Okay. Has anybody read it? A couple? Good. About the same people. Great. Um, And that book severely altered the social atmosphere in American evangelicals um, for decades, actually, I think. And I think it uh, altered uh, the way families functioned to a certain degree and the way churches functioned to a certain degree. We we changed the way we thought about dating and about courting significantly, even if you disagreed with uh, the way that the book went. Um, I think that there was still an effect on uh, on the church and on many of the families that have read that book and implemented its practices. But it's interesting that in the last few months, the author has come out saying that he is sorry that he wrote the book. He himself doesn't agree with it anymore. That he was wrong on many things. And he even apologized to people uh, if he thought uh, if, if for some reason the book had any sort of detrimental effects on them. Well, we're not going to analyze that book in particular today. We're not going to analyze if the dating or the courting kind of paradigms are good or bad and what's good about each of them. But I think, and many others have observed this as well, that this book represents the wrong emphasis that we need to have. The main emphasis of the book and the main emphasis that we find in mainstream evangelical culture is simply to not have sex outside of marriage. Now, of course, that is a good and a right and a true thing. But the book and the surrounding uh, evangelical culture completely ignores any sort of positive side. Um, everything in the book is about condemning things. Shame, the shame that is associated with uh, if you do succumb to that sin. Um, and, you know, everything is, is, is condemning about, uh, about that issue. But what it completely lacks is any sort of positive view of sex. There's no goodness of sex. There's no purpose of sex. The book never articulates why sex should actually be in the context of marriage, at least in any robust fashion. Some of you might have heard my conversation yesterday about sports and how the church has, from its inception, had a very low view of sports. It's almost as if sports were just something that are bound to happen, and the church has either got to accommodate it for its own purposes or just kind of allow it Um, making sure that there's some proper guidelines so that we don't worship it and let it uh, become idolatrous. And up until recently, there's been no actual constructive theology, no positive theology of sport from the church. The only thing that we're given is rules on how not to take sports too far. And I think the exact same thing is true with the way the evangelical culture has viewed relationships between young men and women. They are, you are, bound to have these relationships, and so we just need to 
make these rules that make sure that you don't go too far. It's bound to happen, so we just have to confine it to a degree. But just like sports, where the positive view of, uh, of it is extremely helpful, I think that we must have a positive view of relationships as well. And the problem is, is that that is a very weak area of the church. There is no constructive theology of relationships. We're not told what we need to do. We're just simply told what we shouldn't do. Life, law, as, as we've been defining it, um, is merely about what we shouldn't do. As, um, you know, you shouldn't do this thing. But then there's no actual uh, flip side to that on what you should do. And so that's what I want to try to talk about today. I want us to try to come up with a better understanding of God's law and a better understanding of what sin is, and then hopefully, in doing so, we can come up with uh, a constructive theology, a positive theology, where we know what we ought to be doing and not simply what we shouldn't be doing. To do this, I'm going to first propose a view of the law and of sin that I think helps us to do this. It helps us construct this positive view. Um, and then I'm going to talk about how, uh, hopefully the middle part won't be too boring for you, but I'm going to talk about how we have gotten to where we are in evangelical um, circles, kind of discussing some of the theological and philosophical movements that have gotten us to where we are. And then at the very end, I'm going to try to... Um, give us a brief constructive theology, or at least get us thinking about about that, that will help us uh, to be motivated to actually do the good and the right behavior, rather than just simply focusing on what we shouldn't do. So that's the game plan. A different perspective on law and sin, how we got here, philosophically, theologically, and then how we are actually supposed to engage in relationships. So first, as, we, as my questions in the beginning helped us uh, help reveal the way we think about God's law, we think of it generally as something that is condemning. But I don't think that that's the way that we need uh, primarily to think about it. So to get this full, a fuller picture of God's law, we're going to look at three episodes um, in the Bible that help us to understand um, God's law in a, in a fuller sense. The first comes from Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 says, And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. As I think about kind of this scene, you know, when you read these few verses and kind of unfold it a little bit in my mind, it sounded something like this. Adam, you can eat anything that you want. Anything. You can have it all. But just not this one tree over here. Adam says, really? Are you sure I can eat all of this? Every other tree in this garden. Oh yeah, yeah, you can have it all. Just remember, don't do this one over here. Really? What about this one? What about this really big and beautiful one over here? Yeah, sure, you can eat of that. But just remember 
to not eat this. Trust me on this. You need to trust me, Adam. He's giving you all of this. He gave Adam everything. This garden of yes with one tree of no. Which you all are probably familiar with that phrase. And even that tree of no, though, you just need to trust me. I'll give you, I'll give you that too if you just wait. You'll be able to eat of that tree as well if you mature and if you grow and if you can show me that, uh, that you're trustworthy. But right now, I want you to guard this garden. I want you to keep it. And I want you to enjoy it. I want you to enjoy it with your wife. As she helps you work it, enjoy it. Eat of everything that you could possibly have. But just trust me on this one thing. God gave Adam this garden of yes with one small no. But even that no, as I said, was meant to be a yes, I believe. God would have given Adam that fruit as he matured, as he showed, as he proved himself to be trustworthy. A common analogy for that is to think about um, how uh, a parent might view giving the keys to the car to a 10-year-old. It's not that they don't want the 10-year-old to ever drive, but they want that 10-year-old to uh, be of the physical and the mental kind of maturity to be able to drive safely for everybody. So, and that's, that's the way I think we need to think of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God wanted Adam to have everything as his son. He was in perfect fellowship with God. And he would have given him that too if Adam were to prove himself. <clears throat> so, fundamentally then, as we think about the law in this sense, we need to think about the goodness of the law. God told Adam what he needed to do. Adam was in this garden temple in perfect fellowship with God. And even the one prohibition was there to enable Adam to mature. So even the prohibition was a good thing because it enabled Adam to grow and to prove his trustworthiness. The second episode that I'd like us to consider is the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Um, Some of you might be familiar with the Westminster Larger Catechism. And I forget exactly the question, 130-something or something, but... um, it says, what is the preference to the Ten Commandments? Does anybody remember the preference to the Ten Commandments? Very good, yeah. <laughs> I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So that's the preface, and then God moves into the Ten Words, or the Ten Commandments. Now why is that important? Why is that one preface important? God was saying, I just took you away from being slaves. Okay. Um, so, you know, don't go being a slave to sin, and this is how you don't. Okay. Yeah. Good. Anybody else? And it's, um, it brings the law into the context of redemption. Good. Uh, yes. As a, as a recreation. Yeah. So, um, So God is reminding them, he's reminding Israel that he actually just saved them. He redeemed them. He delivered them out of slavery. He delivered them out of Egypt. 
He brought them through the Red Sea. He fed them with miraculous food. He saved them in more ways than we could possibly imagine. And in light of all of that salvation that they just experienced, he's going to give them a way of living. Um, I married a Lutheran girl, and uh, Lutherans are known for their uh, a dichotomy between the law and the gospel. The law, for many Lutherans, comes to show us our sins. It comes to condemn us. And after that condemnation, then we can feel the grace of the gospel. Now that is true to a certain extent, but I think it's only half of the picture. There's also a sense in which that sequence, this law and then the gospel, is an inaccurate sequence. The preface of the Ten Commandments reminds us of that. The gospel actually comes first. Salvation came first to Israel. Grace came first to Israel. And then they received the law. For the people of Israel, following the law wasn't just something that they had to do because God told them not to do it. No, they followed God's law because they had just experienced salvation. And they were experiencing and indeed watching the power and the majesty of God who had just delivered them. Following the law, then, was a response to a relationship that they had with the God of their fathers, with their Savior. Even the content of the law suggests that grace preceded it. In commenting on the fourth commandment, Karl Barth said that humanity under God's law really begins with the gospel and not with the law, with an accorded celebration and not a required task with a prepared rejoicing and not with care and toil, with a freedom given and not an imposed obligation, with a rest and not with an activity. That's not law gospel. It's first gospel and then law. So that's the second episode. Closely related to that episode um, is Exodus chapter 40. At the very end of Exodus, after the elaborate instructions for the construction of the tabernacle. We're told that the tabernacle is erected and then it's then consecrated by Moses. And then at the very end of the book of Exodus, we're told that the cloud covered the tent of meeting meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. What Adam had in the garden, perfect fellowship with God in this garden temple is now somewhat regained. God is now dwelling in the midst of his people. God is enthroned in the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant is his footstool on the earth in the most holy place. Now why do I bring this up? What does that particular aspect have to teach us about the Lord's law and about sin? Well, it teaches us what Israel actually was. Israel was a nation, a community, that lived with Yahweh. I am who I am is in their midst. First in the tabernacle, and then in the temple. The people of Israel lived with God. They literally camped around the tabernacle before they arrived in the promised land, obviously. They prayed to God right there. They offered sacrifices right there in the middle of their camp. They ate with him when they ate of the peace offering. 
But because he was a holy God and his people sinful, Israel had to perpetually be thinking about their own status before God. They had to be thinking about their sins. And they had to be thinking about their ritual or their ceremonial status, whether they were considered clean or unclean. If they were clean, then they were allowed to participate in the nation's uh, in, in worship in the tabernacle. If they were unclean, then they were not allowed to participate in the community. They had to go outside the camp for a while. They had to do various sacrifices and washings and things like that. But they weren't allowed to participate. Following the law allowed them to participate in the community which had God dwelling in its midst. Following the law allowed them to participate then in God himself. Obedience was motivated by being able to participate in a society that participated in God. So, if we think about law and sin from that standpoint, sin is not just a transgression of the law, a missing of the mark, not doing what we ought to do, and however you phrase the opposite of that. Um, Sin is a transgression of the law that led to your removal of participation in God. The consequence of sin was being removed from participating in God himself. Furthermore, God's law ordered a distinctive society to function as one that had God in its midst. Put differently, as scholar John Levinson says, biblical law is of the same order as the laws of nature, the inner mechanism of creation. In this theology, the commandments appear as the extension into human society of cosmic order, divinely ordained and sustained. The commandments are an extension into human society of a cosmic order. Now that God was dwelling in their midst, Israel needed to behave a certain way. And God's law taught them what a human society actually looked like, what it was supposed to look like. Theologian Patrick Miller says that all the commandments in the second table are aimed at protecting the well-being of members of the community by placing upon each one a responsibility for the other neighbor. So the seventh commandment, for example, is not just about me and my wife, but it's about my neighbor and his wife. The commandment creates boundaries that respect and show honor to our neighbors. Listen again to what Karl Barth says in commenting, this time on the seventh commandment, the commandment against adultery. He says, The commandment against adultery is a clear example of the way in which the commandments often serve to delimit within a large moral space, to set bounds in a, uh, in a realm of much freedom. For the marriage of a man and a woman is a partnership in freedom, where the love for the other serves always and continually to set free. It is not bondage, it is a bond in freedom, a tie that releases, a tie that releases. Marriage is a specific act of creating moral space, of bringing about a realm in which life is lived in its fullest and most complex way about the deepest relationships. So this is a completely different way of thinking about the law. The law, to be sure, sets boundaries, but within those boundaries, 
There is perfect freedom. There is true enjoyment. The commandment is not a bondage. It is a bond in freedom. A tie that actually releases. And finally, again from Miller, obedience to the commandment serves to preserve the freedom of the neighbor's marriage and of my marriage. Just as Bart said, the marriage creates this moral realm in which life is lived in its fullness. The commandment ensures that that realm of life and that realm of freedom is not violated by another. So I think this is helping us to see a slightly bigger view of God's law, perhaps. If we want to experience life to its fullness, if we want to have the greatest joy, the greatest love, the greatest friendships, the greatest marriages, then we follow God's law. God's law teaches us how life is supposed to be. If you're longing for a spouse, then why in the world would you do it in a way that is contrary to God's principles? That way is bound to fall short in some way. Following God's law, though, means that you're actually submitting to this cosmic order of the way things are supposed to be. You're submitting to real reality. Failing to do so means that we miss out on the best of life. And so I think that this is how we need to think of the law, but then also of sin as well. Just like for Israel, sin isn't just a transgression of God's law. Sin is a transgression of God's law that has an impact on our fellowship with God. When an Israelite sinned, certain sacrifices had to be made in order to restore fellowship with the community and therefore with God. Now, of course, Jesus made the final sacrifice, but there's still a sense in which when we sin as God's children, that we grieve God and our relationship with God and with his people is strained, is marred, perhaps. We shouldn't just not sin because it's sin. We shouldn't just not have sex before marriage because that is sin. No, we shouldn't sin because doing so would result in something that is less than what is promised for us. And it can affect our fellowship with one another and, of course, with God. And so in summary of this first section, then, I want you to think about the real purposes of God's law. They aren't there to just regulate behavior and ban bad behavior. Rather, they are there to give life, to allow for right fellowship with God. And sin detracts from that life that comes from the law. It hinders our participation in the fellowship with God. Any questions or comments on that section? Okay. Um, so, how then, if that's this view of the law, that's, um, by the way, not just unique to me, um, Pastor Booth articulated something similar, and, and it's, uh, you can find it in, in, in lots of Reformed scholars as well. Um, if that's the case, though, then how do we get to where we are in the evangelical culture today? Um, how are we, how do we just have this negative view of God's law? How do we have this, these books being written that are just trying to simply preventing us from doing moral atrocities. 
Well, I think in order to answer that question, we've got to kind of look at some major movements in philosophy and in theology. Um, because they really help us to understand where we are. At least the way my mind functions, uh, I, I don't really fully understand how I'm supposed to act in certain situations in our time and history unless I understand all of the back uh, history as well. Maybe I'm unique to that, in which case this would be very boring to you, but uh, I hope not. I, I think it's fascinating. So we're going to look at five movements uh, beginning in the high Middle Ages. Any history buffs here? Please? All right, good. All right. So two people will find this interesting. <laughs> all right. Um, both of these movements arose out of controversies in the High Middle Ages. The first was a challenge by a guy named Duns Scotus against the view that the church had basically since its inception for 1,400 years, 1,300 years. And that is known as the analogy of being. According to this view, our being, our existence, is analogous to God's existence. It's actually not that uh, we would be very comfortable with it. We're made in God's image. We were made by God. And it is through him that we live and move and have our being. There's an analogy of being between God and between us. But Scotus comes along and he says that that's utter nonsense. We exist just like God exists. Our being is just like God's being. We're just different types of being. He's an eternal being and we are created beings. But this whole analogy stuff is just absolutely ridiculous. So, it's a little bit, uh, maybe a little bit too philosophical, but think about what that does for us. If there's no analogy of being, if we're not like God in a certain sense, in an analogous sense, then that frees us from uh, of acting like the person to whom, or with whom we are analogous. Does that make sense? Okay. The second movement in the High Middle Ages came from a debate between the realists and the nominalists. Pastor Sexton talked about nominalism yesterday, and I think that its uh, philosophical roots, anyway, are here. Uh, so, does anybody recall from Pastor Sexton's, Sexton's uh, lecture what nominalism is? What does the word mean? Comes from the word name. So in name only is the way we describe it generally today. Um, in name only, philosophically speaking, William of Ockham, who is one of the chief proponents of nominalism, said that a thing, an idea, or a law can exist apart from its source. So for the purposes of our discussion, God's law can exist, and it doesn't have to be necessarily tied to his character. He can just pronounce that it is law. And in fact, in their debates, he, uh, God could make a law that was actually contrary to his character. That's kind of the, the extension of where nominalism goes. So think about the effects of that. Then. It has this effect on how we view God's law and how we view God's actions in the world as being separated from who he actually is. God just made this set of rules, and we've got to follow him because we're the created, and he is the creator. So it really guts this view of the law that we're trying to 
talk about that I'm trying to advance here. So, nominalism, this, this, the law can exist apart from being attached to God's character, uh, actually prevailed philosophically. And it even affected Martin Luther to a degree. Uh, scholars have been critical of Luther's view of the declaration of righteousness, saying that this is a manifestation of nominalism. But I think that it also uh, affected the way that he thought about the law. For Luther, the law was this, this set of principles, this set of rules um, against which we should not uh, act. Those rules are just there. But the really, the really good character of God, that came in the gospel. That came in the grace of the gospel. So again, you've got this, uh, this pushing back against this analogy of being. You've got nominalism ruling the day. Uh, that kind of follows over into Luther, and that uh, helps us to see how we're getting to where we are today. Now, you might think, well, I'm not a Lutheran, I don't have this view of the law, but actually, Luther's views are much more predominant than you might think. John Bunyan, for example, the Puritan, was greatly influenced by Luther. I'm sure many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress, but Pilgrim, if you recall, is struggling with the burdens of sin brought on by this kind of low view of the law, I think. The law, then, so with all of these movements, is becoming more and more detached from who God is, more and more detached from how we ought to live in a way that participates in God himself, and more and more about just a set of rules that we should not uh, disobey. This brings us to the final movement. Um, I'm sorry, the fourth movement, which is revivalism. I'm sure that many of you guys have talked about the revivals in America and the First and Second Great Awakenings. There were a lot of fascinating things, some good and some bad, that came out of these. But the most pertinent theme for us, for this conversation, is how the gospel was narrowed, how the gospel itself became this very narrow thing. Rather than the gospel being an announcement of the atoning king's entrance into the world to push back against darkness, the gospel became limited to basically a forgiveness of sins. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that the gospel is not the forgiveness of sins. To be sure, it is. That's what the atoning aspect of Jesus' ministry was all about. The reconciliation of us to, uh, to God uh, through the covering of our sins. Um, but the gospel is also much more than just the forgiveness of sins. The gospel is about the king coming to restore all things back to God himself. To set everything that is wrong back onto a trajectory where every, all of those wrong things will be righted, basically. So with the revivalism that took place in America, we have this truncation of the gospel. The gospel is reduced merely to the forgiveness of sin. And that brings us then, I think, uh, to the fifth and final movement, where we are, where evangelicals have reacted against rampant immorality of the last half century, by stressing moral behavior only 
in, a, in ways that epitomize all of these movements. Obeying God's law is just something that we have to do. God's law is completely removed from his character. We ourselves are removed from any sort of analogous relationship of being with God himself. So there's this huge emphasis only on what we shouldn't do, on the condemning nature of the law, and there's very little emphasis on what we ought to do, the goodness of the law, and how we ought to live. Because of that, it becomes understandable then that we actually don't know how to act with the opposite sex. We've been told so much about how what not to do that we don't know what to do. Now, I think you guys are probably in a little better situation because you've got largely you know, good and wise, faithful parents, good churches, things like that. I went to a public high school, and in a public high school, you either see rampant immorality or extreme awkwardness. And there's no, you know, there's no, uh, there's no right behavior. You know, nobody, uh, a, a man doesn't know, a young boy doesn't know how to go up to a young girl and be uh, kind and polite to her. You know, perhaps enter into a relationship with her in an appropriate way. That just doesn't exist. You just have these two extremes, awkwardness or immorality. Because we haven't been taught what to do. We've only been taught what not to do. Rather than simply reacting against something, rather than having our theology based entirely off what we shouldn't do, we must base our theology of relationships on what we should do. Now again, I'm not saying we need to ignore the prohibitive aspects of what the law says. But remember, going back to Barb, the prohibitive aspects actually allow for freedom within the moral bounds of that relationship. So you've got to have the prohibitions, but the prohibitions allow you to experience life and joy. And so I think that that is something that we, uh, we all, not just uh, pastors, but we all need to think about. How do we construct this positive theology? How do we construct a theology that teaches us what we should do and not what we shouldn't do? And so I have a couple of thoughts on that. They are by no means comprehensive. That's something that we, as the church, and you all can participate in, need to develop uh, much, much further as we think about this. What should we do? What is the positive side? How should you, as young single adults, engage in relationships with, other, with others? Seven points here. Number one, rather than seeing the restrictions, like we talked about, that have been placed on you, perhaps by your parents, perhaps by God's law, rather than seeing those as preventing you from doing what you want, you, in your mind, have to flip the switch and you have to see them as boundaries inside of which you can experience true life as it is meant to be. You have to, you have to start seeing your obedience to those rules as a means through which you can participate in God's character and in his nature. Number two, remember that God's law properly orders a society. Therefore, your, o- 
obedience to God's law is a participation in humanity as it is supposed to be. It's so easy for us, especially in topic, talking on this topic, uh, to see you know, marriages gone, gone awry, and, you know, domestic violence, and abuse of all kinds. And those are absolutely reprehensible. But God, by His grace, has called us into His community, and He has taught us how we are to live. Because He has called us to Himself to be His people, to be people who are agents of redemption in the world, our obedience then to God's law is actually, think about this, our obedience to God's law is a participation in the restoring of all things to Christ. Because we are united to Christ, we are brought into his body, we become agents of redemption as well. So when we live a certain way, when we follow God's law, when we submit to his law, then we are actually helping to show the world what marriage looks like, what humanity is supposed to look like. Number three, if you have not been given good guidelines for how to pursue relationships with the opposite gender, perhaps your home life wasn't the best, perhaps your church is not the best in giving these guidelines, then seek them out. Ask what would be appropriate. Ask what is appropriate. Since we don't know, since I wasn't taught what an appropriate relationship looks like as an 18-year-old kid, ask. Ask a wise elder. Ask a wise member of your congregation. Perhaps do a little bit of research on generations past, seeing what guidelines they had for how to have this relationship. And remember, all the while that you're doing this, as you're asking for guidance, as you're perhaps researching things, that these restrictions for you will actually be your freedom. Number four, <coughs> pursue relationships with others of your own gender and of the other gender. Because we are made in the image of God who exists in three persons bound together in love, we too are made to be in community. Be in an appropriate community with the other members of the body of Christ. Now, for some, that's just kind of a no-brainer. But for others, that's something that might not be comfortable. And so you need to seek it out. You need to seek out community. You need to have deep friendships with boys and girls and men and women in your churches. Appropriate friendships, to be sure. But you need to have these. We were made to be in community, and we must be in community. Guys, you need to have deep friendships with guys and with girls. Not even romantic friendships. They can just be deep friendships. And girls, you need to do the same. This camp, of course, is a great way for us to do that. It's a great way for the bonds of friendship to be developed. And that is a wonderful thing because we are living out our true identity as people who are made in the image of a tri-personal God, of a God who himself is community. Number five, know that your bodies are good 
and they're beautiful regardless of what you might think. God has made you the way he has for his reasons. He has made you in his image regardless of what you think, and that is a good thing. It's a short point, but I think it's a necessary one to make. Mostly because we have so much of the prohibition, uh, you know, don't do this, don't do this. It can lead to a, a low view of your body. Your bodies are good and beautiful. Number six, remember that true joy, true freedom, true pleasure comes by adhering to the patterns of creation and of God's instruction. Obeying them is not a prison cell, but rather a vista waiting to be explored. Number seven. Finally, don't think of sex merely as what is prohibited. Rather think of it as a gift from God, like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that God is waiting to give to He's waiting for the right time. He's waiting for you to prove yourself, to be mature, to be trustworthy. If you trust him, you will enjoy that gift to the fullest sense. If you take it prematurely, then you will die, or at the minimum, you will be disappointed. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you uh, for the goodness of your law, and in my feeble words, Lord, I ask that you will help all of us here to, to know the goodness of your law, to know that it brings freedom, to know that it brings pleasure and joy. Help us to understand the movements that have caused us to think uh, lowly of your law, but rather that we can sing uh, psalms of praise to you, rejoicing in the goodness of your law. Help us to embrace it with all of our bodies. Teach us, Lord, to be patient. Teach us to trust you, knowing that uh, you are wanting to give us all things for our own good, for us who, uh, who prove ourselves and show that we are trustworthy. Be with us now, Lord, as we conclude this section. Uh, help us to have uh, good reflection on this topic. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.